0: Romans chapter 5 verses 9 through 11. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for the gift of your word and especially the gift of this message of reconciliation, which we find not only in the preaching of the apostles and the preaching of uh, of your churches to this day, but also and especially at the cross of Jesus Christ, your son. And we give you all praise, honor and glory, Lord Jesus You are the Savior of your church, and it is ever your glories and your graces, which we would wish to know. And we pray that that through the preaching, that glory and that grace, as Paul said to the Galatians, might be set plainly before our eyes. That is to say, the eyes of faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are still considering the subject of the love of God, as we find uh, in chapter 5, verses 5 through 11, this is one of the great, the great statements of God's love that you'll find in scripture. Uh, one thinks of John's epistle, his first epistle, or John 3.16, or Romans chapter 8, but surely Romans chapter 5 has to be numbered among those great passages. And you remember that Paul, uh, had said in verse 5 that the love of God was shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Uh, seeing this, uh, as uh, something of a not a continual experience but but those strong moments of assurance, uh, the testimony of the Holy Spirit with our spirits, assuring us that we are sons, which the believer is apt to have from time to time, and one can hope with ever increasing frequency. This is the greatest experience the believer can experience to have that love poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, but uh, Paul with The logical mind that he had wants to be clear that he is not open to misunderstanding. And certainly we see in Romans just how much misunderstanding was abounding as to his teaching. And he had to say, well, you know, I didn't mean that. No, I didn't mean that either. And and on and on he goes. And so he wants to be clear what the love of God is and where in, in particular it might be found. Where it was that God demonstrated the great love that he has for sinners. And that is what he expresses in verses 6 through 11. And then goes on again in chapter 8 to express in the same way. The love of God for sinners which is found at the cross of Calvary. That is the love that the Holy Spirit pours into the heart of the believer. And what we saw last time. We're dividing this passage up. Uh, we saw in verses 6 through 8. That his love is past measuring. While at the same time, Paul seems to say that we are meant to measure it, or at least to try to measure it. We measure the love of God, for instance, by considering that it is God's own love, not man's love, but the love which God has primarily for himself and within the Trinity. The love of the Father for the Son, for instance, that is the love which he has for sinners. And that this love is full of action. It is not in word only, but also in deed. And concern for our weak and lost estate. He loved us while we were yet sinners. While we were still weak and helpless. He had pity on us. But then seeing that it goes so far uh, as it does. Even to the point that God the Father gave up his own son. That we would not perish but in him have everlasting life. We realize that after all in the end we cannot really measure it. And we find that we are like Paul in another place in Ephesians, where he says in two places that the love of God is past measuring. He says in chapter two, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You see, you can't just speak of the love of God when you think of Where that love is found and what that love accomplishes. No, it is the great love with which he loved us. So he also says at the end of chapter three, for this reason, I bow my knee to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of God or the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, Paul there is expressing precisely the same thing. The love of God shed abroad in the heart of the believer. And what he discovers in the midst of that experience is that it is past measuring. He surveys the the vast dimensions, Paul seems to say. And he says, it simply passes comprehension. It is too great to measure or to comprehend. And thank God for that. Thank God he doesn't love us with a limited love. But the same eternal and perfect love, his own love, that he has for his son and for himself. But it is in this greatness... That it's certainty appears. For if God should so love me as to do this. Even to send his own son to die for me. Delivering him over for my sins while I was weak and still his enemy. Well then I'm no longer in a position to question his love or his intentions. It is true if God had not done this. If he had not sent his son to the cross. In order to display his great love for sinners which means his great love for me, then his, his words would perhaps ring hollow. If he had said, I mean, that he loved me, it would be my duty to believe it, but my faith would struggle to comprehend how this could be. How is it that God could love me and regard me as a friend and not as an enemy? Oh, but here God displays his love, Paul says, or seems to say. In such a way as to make his claims credible. Yes, God says, I have loved my own to the uttermost. And my love cannot fail. And who could question him now that Christ has died? But you see, I'm just uh, reviewing verses 6 through 8. Paul keeps going. He presses the matter further. Although uh, you almost wouldn't believe he could. I'm always amazed to see how he does this. You would think he said it all, but he keeps saying more. And there's an important truth here, lying behind the fact that he says more. Especially with regard to the subject, he has to say so much about. And that is that the love of God in Christ is a subject that is too great to ever fully explore or exhaust. You try to comprehend it and you immediately realize that you do not And that for as much as you know, there is still more to know. And that there is still much that you do not know. Not only is there more to know, but there is more to say. And really, here is a theme that will fill our minds with wonder as we explore it through all the ages of eternity. Yes, there is always more to say. We shouldn't be surprised by that. This is something Martin Lloyd-Jones reflects upon in one of his sermons on this text. He says... Whatever one may say about the love of God in Christ Jesus, there's always more to be said. But we should also remember, as we ask, why does Paul keep going, pressing the point further and further? He will press it to the end of verse 11, and then he'll take it up again in chapter 8 and press it all the way home to the very heights of assurance. That Paul, in this uh, in, in this broader argument, is describing... Our assurance of salvation, that his description of the love of God, which is certain, is part of the broader description of the certainty that we have in God and in salvation. In other words, speaking to the man who's justified, the man who is justified and knows it ought to be sure he ought to have assurance. This is not something that ought to be regarded as exceptional, but common among Christian people. And what is it that makes him sure? Well, there are many answers to this question, but none so potent as the love of God for sinners on display at Calvary. And the more that the believer, the man who is justified, considers that love on display there, or to use Isaac Watts words, the more he surveys the wondrous cross, the more conscious he becomes of that love. And as a result, he grows in assurance. He arrives at assurance. He sets his faith there, and not only is he justified, but he is sure. That is the overarching point of these chapters, chapters 5 and chapters 8, with a parenthesis, chapters 6 and 7. And so that's another reason that Paul keeps going and pressing the point. He is setting our gaze there, and he's focusing our attention on this amazing fact, namely, that God should love us. And how can we ever ever utter such words and not uh, be arrested with a sense of wonder? And yet the amazing thing is that Paul would press home and that I would press home is that it really is true. For as wonderful and and almost unbelievable uh, as it is, even to utter the words, it really is true. God really has made his love apparent. He has displayed it. He has commended it. He's proved it. It's all these different ways you could translate the word we find in verse 8. He's proved it in such a way that we could never question again. Uh, not not honestly, at least. And so this love is so wonderful uh, that we could say it carries with it its own certainties. And that's what Paul goes on to express in verses 9 through 11. He's uh, He is uh, building our assurance, you might say. Because, and I, I, I already began to work on next week's sermon this week, and I, I'm going to say this about joy: every grace is something that can grow or it can wane. Assurance is a grace. Assurance is something uh, that it, that can be measured. Sometimes it reaches the mountain uh, peak, and other times it is very low, just like faith. And Paul wants us to have the greatest possible assurance and the greatest possible grounds for assurance. He is showing us how much reason we have to be sure of this great salvation. And he does so, in these verses, by reasoning in a particular way. He is commending the love of God to us, the grounds of our assurance, the grounds of a great assurance, in a particular way. And he employs three methods of argument here. And I think if you see this, this is the sort of thing Paul does often, It will make greater sense of the text that is before us. And the first of these is the most obvious. But it isn't the only one. It is his reasoning from the greater to the lesser. That is the reason we find his expression much more than having been we shall. And then he fills that out. That is what he says in verses 9 and 10. Much more than having been we shall. Verses 9 and 10. What he's doing is reasoning from the greater to the lesser, which is precisely what we find later on in that famous verse, chapter 8, verse 32. If God so loved us as to deliver over his own son for us, will he not with him freely give us all things? He's done the greatest thing. Will he not also do the lesser thing? Of course he will. It's a reasoning from the greater to the lesser. If God has done the great thing, he will also do the lesser thing. In other words, uh, to, to play out that argument, how unreasonable to think that God would go to such lengths as to send his own son to die for us. And yet to imagine that he would fail to do anything else, that he would not go any further. Again, Paul asks, if he gave his own son, will he not with him freely give us all things? Why wouldn't he? Why would he give his own son only to stop at that? You see, if you understand the argument from the greater to the lesser, it isn't just Paul. This is an actual uh, type of argument. I'm going to tell you what it is in a moment. In the Latin, uh, he presents an absurdity, if not an impossibility. It is called an a fortiori argument. That's the Latin, which means from the stronger. If the greater is true, the lesser must also be true and this is what we'll return to when we look at the precise language but the second uh, argument or uh, well argument that he uses especially in verses 9 and 10 is also important to grasp what Paul is saying and that is from the present to the future we notice it in the way uh, that these two verses are put verses 9 and 10 Again, much more than having been, we shall. That is an argument from the present to the future. Having been, he says twice, verses 9 and 10. Having been justified, verse 9. Having been reconciled, verse 10. And actually, I should note a bit of grammar here that is placed in the aorist tense. And you even get the sense of the past tense, having been, in the English. But it's clear that Paul is speaking of something in the past that has been accomplished that we are presently enjoying. Having been, or he says, having now been justified by his blood. Christ has died for me. I am now justified because of his death. It's accomplished. It's in the past, but I'm presently enjoying it. That is the present. Having now been justified. Having experienced reconciliation, verses 9 and 10. That's only half of the statement in both of those verses. He reasons from that present enjoyment of present blessings to future certainties. We are, as a result, Paul says, of the present blessings that we are presently enjoying and which have already been accomplished for us, justification, reconciliation by the death of Christ. On account of these, we are certain to enjoy something future. He reasons from the present to the future. That is the argument. Having now been justified by Christ's blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. Future having been reconciled by that same blood, we shall be saved by his life. Future. It is what is presently true, as well as what has already happened, that guarantees something future. So add that uh, to uh, the greater to the lesser. But But the third manner of argument that we find in these two verses is the way he argues, and I'm borrowing here from John Murray, from certainty... To still greater certainty, which may sound absurd to even speak that way, but when you understand your own experience of the grace of God, you understand, as I've, I've just said, that assurance is something that is, uh, subject to degrees. You might have some assurance or you might have what the confession calls a full assurance of, uh, well that's actually, uh, that's actually Hebrews, full assurance of, of hope unto the end. Uh, the confession, actually, I remember now, calls it infallible insurance. So that's the high high point. But you may have some lesser form of assurance. And so along the way in the Christian life, you are going from certainty to still greater certainty. And that's what Paul is doing here. The way Murray puts it is, uh, to describe what Paul is saying here, the much more than, or the not only that, he says he's reasoning with all the greater certainty. Given what we've already seen, do we not now see with all the greater certainty that this is certain? The idea of the still greater. That is what's conveyed in these verses. You see it in the much more than twice. Verses 9 and 10 and then not only that in verse 11. See how much reason we have to be sure, Paul says. And he just keeps heaping reason upon reason as though to say to the believer... Who is apt to doubt and not to be sure. If this won't convince you. Well then will this? Or what about this? But again we need to see. What is the fountain of this certainty. The wellspring from which we may go and draw forth this life and assurance. Let us never lose sight of this so long as we are speaking of the assurance of salvation. Which we all hope to enjoy. Let us never lose sight, I mean, the spring from whence it is drawn. And it is once more, not the love of God generically, but the love of God for sinners seen at the cross. Verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us that in uh, in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. But that thought he carries forward into verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood. We we shall be saved from wrath through him. Verse 10. If when we were enemies we were reconciled to God. Through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled. We shall be saved by his life. And not only that. But we also rejoice in God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom we have now received reconciliation. It is ever you see. The death of Christ. And the ministry. The great high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. Through whom these blessings are known. And ministered to believers. The blessings of the love of God. The blessings of assurance and certainty. It is once more. By considering the vast dimensions of God's love on display at the cross. That we will be able to say along with Paul. Much more than or not only that. But we will be able. To move on from assurance to a still greater assurance. Well so much for the the manner of argument. The next thing I want to do is a second point is to look at the precise terms of the text. Paul has a particular way of putting things here, of describing the blessings upon which our certainty is based uh, that I think is worth considering. And the first of which, and this is immediately arresting, you notice he says that we are justified by his blood. Now, you can't rush over a statement like that. You have to pause and consider it. If anything, I would say it's worthy of its own sermon. I entitled the sermon by that phrase. We're justified by his blood. You have to stop there and say, I'm not sure he's put it that way quite yet. Now, what exactly did he mean by that? Notice the explicit connection between our justification and the death of Christ on the cross. Only here, that death is mentioned not as death, although it is in the next verse, but here as the blood of Christ which was shed for sinners. Although even then it isn't the first time he's mentioned the blood. He mentioned the blood, for instance, and spoke of his death in that way in verses 3, uh, uh, verses 24 and 25 of chapter 3. The redemption that was in Christ Jesus as propitiation by his blood. Now that's similar to justified by his blood, but not quite. He, ha- he still hasn't quite said that phrase yet. But then in chapter 3 he's saying that it was the blood in particular which Christ shed on the cross. You see, not just that he died, but that he died in this particular way, crucified, in order that he might shed his blood for us. And that that blood secures, Paul says, propitiation, which means removal of wrath. And be sure you know what propitiation means. That's not in the systematic theologies, that's in the Bible. And the liberals went to great pains to take that word out. You won't find it in the RSV or the NRSV. But you still find it in our Bibles today. The removal of wrath. That's what Christ's blood accomplishes. Chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. But you notice uh, that idea. you, You think about justified by his blood. You realize the idea of the blood and the importance of the blood really is a thoroughly biblical concept. It's something Paul doesn't speak of. Uh, doesn't just speak of, but really, almost it would seem, every author of the Bible. Perhaps the greatest statement that we find, or at least the clearest, is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. And if you read uh, Hugh Martin's work on the atonement, You will see that that basically becomes the theme verse of the whole whole book. Because it is that single verse that explains why it was that Christ shed his blood on the cross. But then, even then, you see, I didn't say he died on the cross. I said he shed his blood on the cross. And that is because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. That is the great principle that you find connected with the priesthood always in the sacrifices. As you find, for instance, in the Old Testament ceremonial law again and again. And soon in Leviticus, we will be uh, just bathed in that idea. But that's uh, certainly the key thought of the book of Hebrews as well. And it's the way to look at the cross. To see Jesus Christ there acting as a priest. And acting as a priest, he was acting in accordance with the principle. The divine principle that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. It is this which makes sense of the whole idea of atonement and sacrifice. Which included not only the shedding, but also the sprinkling of blood. Which the writer of the Hebrews tells us he did as well. He shed his blood for us on the cross, but he sprinkled that blood in the heavenly sanctuary. And there could be no atonement until this was done. I won't go any further into the arguments here. That's not the purpose of Paul mentioning it at this point. But we ought merely to see... That this is why Christ shed his blood on the cross. What he accomplished by doing this was atonement. It was remission or the forgiveness of sins. And so as Paul says. Summarized in this little phrase justified by his blood. What his death. Which included the shedding of blood accomplishes is my justification. If I have faith. I when I believe in Jesus. When I look upon his bleeding wounds, I am justified by his blood. It is his blood which secures my pardon and which makes it possible. It is his blood which is instrumental in my justification. Without that blood, I could never be justified. I could never be saved. I could never be reconciled. God would ever look upon me as a sinner And I would know nothing but his wrath. But now that Christ has shed his blood. Then everything has changed. I am now justified by that blood. But another reason that I am interested in. Exploring this phrase is because. And some of you were interested to speak to me about this. After I emphasize at the end of chapter 4. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ is. Necessary and instrumental in our justification. Paul says that. Christ was delivered over for our sins, but he was raised for our justification. Some of you said, What about Romans chapter 5, verse 9, where it says we're justified by his blood? My answer is take them together. For in both phrases we have the fullness of his work with respect to our justification. He is both raised for our justification. And he sheds his blood on the cross for our justification. And so if at all I seem to say that the whole of our justification is found in his resurrection. Then let me correct myself now and be as clear as I can. Our justification is found in the fullness of that work. In the blood of Christ shed on the cross. And in his resurrection on the third day. Only be sure on the other side that you do not uh reduce his justifying work to the cross. Be sure, just as soon as you speak of justification in his blood, at least in your mind, to include the thought of the resurrection and to see them together and never apart, never one without the other. Just as soon as you say justified by his blood, you remember his resurrection. And likewise, the reverse is also true. So that's the first phrase, justified by his blood. But then the next phrase if we're going to look on the, the one side of the argument, which is the present or the greater, he says reconciled by his death. That's the first side of verse 10. Now, we don't need to stay long with this. We merely need to see that this is another way to look at his death. Not only are we justified by his blood, we are reconciled by his death. Another fruit of that blessed work. Not only is resulting in my justification, but also reconciliation clearly this is a key concept in these three verses because it's stated three times what do we mean by reconciliation I hope to explore this a little more next time but let me briefly explore it here reconciliation means that where there was enmity where there was hatred where there was animosity and alienation and estrangement these things are no more It is the blessing to use the language of the psalmist. Speaking of brothers. The blessing of dwelling together in unity. Which is good and pleasant. Says the psalmist. No longer at odds. But brought together in a spirit of love and harmony. And peace by the blood of Jesus. Shed on the cross. And how blessed the psalmist says. When this is true of brothers. That they should dwell together. As friends. But let us add. How blessed indeed. By far is it that God and man should dwell together as friends? And let us see at the same time understanding the terms of the argument from the greater to the lesser, from the present to the future. That this falls on the side of the present. Here is yet another accomplished fact. It has been done. It is not something that we are awaiting or hoping to experience. It is something that the believer is presently enjoying. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1 is another way we might put it. But coming to the other side of the argument. The future or the lesser. Or the still greater certainty. The first phrase is. Saved from wrath through him. Having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him. What does he mean by that? Well the wrath which he was referring to is conceived of as a future event it is uh, as it sometimes put the coming wrath the wrath of the last day Uh, therefore not in the sense of chapter 1 verse 18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and sin that's present wrath that's not what's in view here but more in the sense of what he says in chapter 2 verse 5 but in accordance with your hardness. And your impenitent heart you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The day of wrath, the day of judgment, something which is future, something which is coming, something which is going to happen, but which Christ's death saves me from. Now that he has died, my deliverance from this is certain. His death not only pardons me now, but it saves me then from the coming wrath. It makes me safe. And I know it. But finally, in verse 10, the other side, the still greater, the future, and also the lesser. He says what is perhaps the most difficult life, uh, phrase saved by his life. If I've been reconciled by his death, I shall be saved by his life. And I notice the preachers and the commentators are in difficulty over this. And I confess that I'm in some difficulty over this. It is not perfectly clear what Paul means by this. And it is open to various interpretations. But I think what I'm telling you makes the best sense of what he's saying. We shall be saved by his life. If we let the parallelism of verses 9 and 10 govern our view of the argument, then the idea of being saved by his life, which is stated in the future tense, we shall be saved by his life, must also be seen as a future event, not a present one. If we have been reconciled by his death now, we shall be saved by his life then. But what is the life that he is referring to? Well, the life in view here is the life of Christ following his resurrection. The life which is spoken of, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, that Jesus Christ, having gone to the Father after his resurrection, ever lives to make intercession for the saints, whereby we are saved to the uttermost. His present eternal life, Is seen as that which saves us now to the uttermost. And will save us to the uttermost. He ever lives. He lives forever in a state of exaltation and intercession for the church. And on this basis. We are saved to the uttermost. It is the same thought here. We shall be saved. To the uttermost by his unending life. Just as surely as we have been reconciled by his death. For death for Christ was not the end. And neither shall it be the end for me. Such is the thought that Paul goes on to express in chapter 6, verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But you see, it doesn't stop there. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. That's the life of Christ in view here. The life which issues from death and the resurrection and which continues forever. The life that he enjoys now forever in the presence of God interceding for us. And we must see Paul is saying. Our salvation is connected to that. Not merely connected to his death. So thank God for that. But also connected to his present life. And it is that present perfect eternal life. In the presence of the father. That will bring about in the future. The perfect fullness of salvation to me. It is his life along with his death. That will save me to the uttermost. Especially in the resurrection. When in my life. Death will give way to future glory in the resurrection. Those are the terms. And that is the manner of argument. But now that we've seen that, we have to try to apply it to ourselves. And to understand the precise form of the argument for the believer. Begin with verse 9. First he says, you've been justified by his blood. I hope by now we know it. And that we know the thing is certain and it cannot be undone. It's happened, and now you as a believer are enjoying it presently. Oh, but do you realize this, Paul says? This being true, how much more ought you to see that you will be saved from the coming wrath through him? In other words, if he has secured your justification by his own blood, do you think for a moment that he will stop there? Or do you realize? That present justification carries along with it the certainty of future salvation. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 makes this clear. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation now in the present, but also forevermore. There is no condemnation for the believer ever. Condemnation is now taken totally out of view and it cannot touch us now that we have been justified. Our position is totally safe and secure and there is no possibility now that somehow we would be subject to or experience the wrath of God on the day of wrath. The thing is impossible. And so the argument goes, if the greater is true that I, a sinner, should be justified in the present, which, let us admit, is the greatest Dilemma even God should face. How it is that a sinner could be reconciled and made right with the Holy God. But you see, once this has been resolved, what of the rest? Surely if God has done the greatest thing, he will do all the rest. Surely now it is not unreasonable to claim the lesser. That one who is already justified and at peace with God now should be delivered from the wrath to come. No, the thing is obvious. The thing is certain. If only you could see it, then you would be sure. Or to put it stronger, moving on to verse 10. If the present enmity is removed, and you notice he speaks again of the fact that we were God's enemies, but now through the death of Christ we have been reconciled, that we're presently enjoying this. How much more obvious is it that we shall also be saved by his life? God has carried us this far. Will he not finish the work? Will he not carry us a little farther, finishing what he has begun? Or will he reconcile us now, only to treat us as enemies in the end? How unreasonable, and indeed insulting to the Divine Majesty, to imagine that he would go to such lengths, causing us to enjoy such present blessings, namely reconciliation and peace. Only to allow us all to perish in the end. Let me say again. What an insult. What a travesty. What a misunderstanding. Of divine mercy and grace. The man who thinks this reveals that he hasn't understood his first principles. He hasn't understood who God is. He doesn't understand what justification means. If you think that to be justified places a man on on unstable ground. That the man who's standing in grace might be knocked over. I know the thing is taught even today in other uh, in other communions such as the Roman Catholic Church. The one thing that is anathema to them even now is that a believer might have assurance. But here is the argument of the Apostle Paul. The believer ought to be sure he's standing on stable ground. And he cannot be knocked off from where he's standing. You can't place a man in Christ and take him out. To be justified means he can never be lost. It means he's forever saved. But what do you think of that? I wonder, dear Christian, if you enjoy such an assurance for yourself. Or if Paul's words here seem strange to you. Here he conceives of the Christian as one who not only enjoys assurance with respect to present blessings. But also with respect to ultimate salvation. The Christian is one who considers the vast expanse of eternity and even the the coming day of wrath. And he realizes always and ever, I will be kept safely in the hand of my Savior. One, in other words, who not only enjoys justification and is sure, but who also sees and enjoys the full certainty that justification gives, namely with respect to my final and complete salvation on the last day, Paul puts it like this in another place. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's another way of putting it. It's all all connected. It all goes together. Along with my justification is my glorification. And nothing can stand in the way or short-circuit it ever. Not even my sin. God has begun a work in me that he he will never abandon. He will certainly finish it. And he will manifest it perfectly and completely on the last day. His purposes cannot fail, and to the extent that I perceive those purposes in justification and in the death of Christ, I perceive in myself a salvation begun that will only become more gloriously apparent on the last day. To use the language of Paul in chapter 8, I am persuaded, I am sure, and what I am persuaded of especially is the great love of God, a love which cannot fail and which will save me to the uttermost. And a love from which nothing can separate me. Now I had hoped to say something uh, at the end about joy here. Verse 11. But I think I've said enough for one sermon. We've already passed the hour. We'll leave that for next time. But let me just say a few more words in closing. Let me ask you all. Have you understood the argument? Has Paul given you reasons which are persuasive to your own heart? Do you see, for instance, the value of the argument from the greater to the lesser, which is one of Paul's favorites? Or from present blessings to future certainty? Do you see how what you are enjoying presently ought to make you sure with respect to all that is coming to you? Or from certainty to still greater certainty? Here are what I would call the reasons of faith or for faith the reasons to be sure. But are you sure? Do you have assurance or is your faith still unsettled and full of doubts? Well, listen to Paul here and learn to reason things through as he does. When Satan comes along with his arguments as the accuser of the saints, you have to counter those arguments. You have to learn at the same time to do a bit of preaching as Paul does. Preaching, I don't mean from a pulpit, but preaching to your own heart and preaching in rebuke of Satan. When he comes along and tries to tell you that God could not love one such as yourself. You have to tell him right then. That you could not have believed it yourself. But for the fact of Jesus Christ his son. Put upon that cross. But now God not only convinced me of his love. But of many other things. Things present. Things to come. Yes and do you know. You say. Now I know that nothing can separate me from this love. Not now. Not ever. Here are things you see that even Satan can't rebut. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Not anyone. Not Satan. Not the sinful heart. But you have to learn to preach to yourself. You have to spend some time with these verses And meditate them and let them permeate your own soul to the point that you find that you are delighting and exalting in just the way that Paul is doing here. To set your faith upon what God has done and what he will do. The work of God. That is the way to be sure. That is the way to have assurance. And that is the way to stop Satan from robbing you of your confidence and joy and believing. Joy being the subject of the next sermon. And when you see clearly what God has done and will do, and you place your confidence and your faith in that, then you will have assurance, an assurance which is growing and one which no one and nothing can take from you because it is built upon the rock which is stable and which is certain. You will have assurance, even you who has such a doubting heart and who is at times too ready to listen to the arguments and the persuasion of the enemy. You will have to conclude along with Paul. What shall we say to these things? Romans chapter 8 verse 31. Well, what things is he talking about? The very things we've been considering. Yes. And what shall we say to them? Shall we really begin to dispute them? Or do we not see that if God is for us, who can be against us now and forevermore? Amen. And let us now come to the table.